So welcome to our incredible audience and everyone who has taken the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for joining us for the first ever collab event between Tamil Culture and Startup Dojo. The purpose of this conference is really just to showcase entrepreneurial talent within the Tamil community and to inspire the next generation of innovators. So our feature guest for today is Travis Rutnam, CEO of Knowledge Hook. Um, and this event is brought to you by Startup Dojo and Tamil Culture. Tamilculture.com, aka TC, is a community platform where Tamils from around the world come to create, connect, and sell. Huge thank you out to Shiv and Ara from Tamil Culture for helping to make this event a success. I'm going to quickly add links to everything I'm mentioning in the chat. So here we go. My name is Angelina Narendran, and I am so excited to be your host today. I'm program director at Startup Dojo, host of the 2020 show, and two-time Vex Robotics World Champion, having beat over 20,000 international teams. I founded my first venture when I was just 15 years old, and now I'm committed to spreading that spirit of entrepreneurship through Startup Dojo. And that's a big part of why I'm so excited to be here with Travis to share entrepreneurship with all of you. From Steve Jobs to Ben Franklin, the world was built by entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurial skills are leadership skills. And with the right support and guidance, any young person can become an entrepreneur and build a successful venture before they graduate high school. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I know it's possible because I've done it. So at Startup Dojo, we give ambitious young students the tools and support that they need to become entrepreneurs and the leaders of tomorrow. So if you think you have what it takes to join the program, apply at mystartupdojo.com apply. Again, I'm putting all the links in the chat. Um, and by the way, if you like free things, you're going to want to stick around until the end. We have some pretty cool surprises lined up for you. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into it. I'm so excited to welcome our incredible feature guest today, Travis Rutnam. Travis, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. I, like I should be interviewing you. <laughs> That's quite a, quite a feat on the robotics competition. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in and give everyone a brief intro into who you are. Um, so once again, we're so excited to have you on the show, Travis. Travis is the CEO and co-founder of Knowledge Hook, a software that helps students learn more effectively. This incredible tool works by re recommending expert design teaching activities based on each student's personal needs. They're also a winner of BNN's top disruptors. At the height of the pandemic, Knowledge Hook Open Access was released to 72 Ontario school districts so that schools could effectively continue their mathematics learning from home. This platform has been endorsed by agencies like the Ontario Ministry of Education and so much more. So awesome background, you've done some awesome things. So thank you so much for joining us today, Travis. I'm really excited to hear more about your journey. Sure, yeah, I mean, I, um, 
I had, you know, looking back, I mean, 10 years ago, I would have never imagined, um, you know, that this is where we would be. Um, I could dive right in and share a little bit about how we got here, if that's um, what you're looking for. Yeah, of- yeah. So over the past few years, you've, you've seen lots of growth and success, um, like we just talked about. So for people who are just beginning their journeys, especially young people, it can be pretty easy to just, you know, feel intimidated. So like you were saying, I think it'd be fascinating to hear more about that entire journey. How did you get here? What were you, what was your childhood like? And, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. Wow. I, I, so I guess, you know, there's a lot of things like just connecting the dots backwards. There's a lot of things that really help cultivate um, the spirit of entrepreneurship, even at an early age. Um, You know, I think, when you think about uh, that journey from the perspective of, you know, um, you know, as a kid, some of the things that really perhaps helped me um, think about entrepreneurship is creating things, making things, uh, be it uh, robots like the uh, robots that you worked on in your in, in your uh, competition, be it uh, science projects, um, ideas that you know, starting a club. Uh, little things like that. I actually I did a lot of that uh, when I was young. Um, started lots of clubs in the schoolyard um, and took apart gadgets and gizmos and couldn't always put them back together again. But that attempt to try and fail and try again, I think, um, really helps cultivate this idea that uh, you can, all the things around you, uh, you know, somebody made it. And um, just the connection between the things you use every day and the, the, the fact that those folks had to be kids at one point and they eventually got to the level where they could make something and put it out in the world and just being able to slowly bridge the gap between those two concepts and that everyone had to start somewhere. And I think often in your childhood, um, you know, we are so used to consuming things but not so much making things. But today, I think the generation, I'm so proud to see your work and, and, and the, the generation that's coming after us. Uh, unlike our generation, perhaps, you have more tools to create things, be it social media, YouTube, uh, be it uh, you know, products and, and, and ideas. There's just a lot more creativity and cre- opportunity to create and this normalization around that. And I think that's really key to the first step. Uh, in, in your journey. And as you go along, um, as I did, I went along, one of the, I think, big influences for me was um, I had this internship uh, at Bell Canada um, where I was a product manager. And I got to see that me, someone who has not yet graduated university, could actually help Bell put a product into the market and get to see what that experience was. And I think for me, that really, uh, you know, uh, connected all the dots and said, wow, I want to be a product manager. And that's my dream job. And so eventually went on to work at uh, Microsoft as a program manager there, rolled out some features with Microsoft Office and got a lot of exposure there. But I think for me, the, obviously, these are, these are things that help along the way. Uh, I'm really grateful for the parents that I have and, and the family support systems that I have that, Sometimes, you know, there's, there's an element of luck as well that goes into that. Um, but uh, yeah, for those starting off, uh, I think, 
you know, if there's anything I, I take away from what I learned from my experience, it's really, uh, you know, enjoying the process of making things, no matter how, where you are in your journey and putting it out there and seeing what happens. Because the truth is like, uh, you know, people forget very easily, especially if you fail. And it's just as fast as, you know, you can, like, it's, it's really going to be a question of how fast can you get back up and try again. And I think the more you do that, the inevitability of uh, building something great that you love and people might love, um, that just happens um, over time. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, we talked a bit about, you know, your, your journey and like um, things that helped get you where you are today. I'm wondering, do you have any specific childhood inspirations or, you know, people who really helped you, helped you be, to like take on that creator mindset as opposed to consumer? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. Uh, I remember reading a, a book when I was a kid uh, about the Wright brothers and how their mom, uh, and it was a children's book. And obviously, looking back, it, it, it clearly was designed to, to, to spark this sort of thing where the, uh, the Wright brothers would ask questions and uh, their mom was the type of mom that instead of just kind of brushing it off would find a creative answer. And um, just this, this uh, so the Wright brothers certainly was one of my uh, childhood heroes. Thomas Edison, uh, reading about him, I think not too long after that. Mahatma Gandhi, um, um, you know, sometimes, you know, when I think about, you know, I think more like pioneer than entrepreneur. When you pioneer, contributions to humanity, new ideas, new concepts, and you make an impact, you take on a risk, uh, and you, you make some huge sacrifices. I do find that, to me, that's really the inspiration, whether it's a new genre of music, uh, or it's uh, essentially a, a company or anything, or an invention. I had a lot of interesting childhood stories that I collected over the years, and I think for me, while I was collecting those, though, I, I, I think I should share a little bit about my personal struggle too. So I actually was a poor performing kid in, in, when I was a kid uh, in, in elementary. I, I struggled in math, I struggled in every subject across the board. And one thing that stuck with me uh, was this belief that perhaps I was stupid. And, uh, and obviously now I know looking back that that word itself uh, does a lot of disservice to society because I just don't think that that, for the most part, I just don't think that's actually true uh, for, for anyone, it's this idea of, uh, and so, but I genuinely thought that at the time and my dad, um, my mom, uh, when I was struggling, my mom actually quit her job and became a stay-at-home mom, which again, one of those lottery tickets having parents like the ones I did plays a big role in one's success. I can't, I can't, you can never discount that. So my mom had done that and my dad was a former uh, math tutor in Sri Lanka and he helped me uh, overcome that uh, personal belief of that I was, you know, stupid um, and the dumbest kid in the class by helping me uh, learn math. And uh, I was his only tutor, like I was the only student from my dad in Canada. So he, he had this fear of, you know, oh, my son's struggling in math. If I start tutoring kids here and, and, and the thought of, you know, helping all these kids with my own son uh, struggling and I think it haunted him so I found out later that like he that was the reason why he never tutored anyone here but he was uh, well known in Sri Lanka for his tutoring in his town and um, anyway so I had him for a dad and eventually 
did well in math. But when you struggle like the way that I did, I suppose, and a lot of folks can relate to this, you, I guess, cultivate um, uh, what I believe is called an imposter syndrome. And so I had that all the way into high school, despite being eventually overcoming my um, struggle in school, eventually doing really well in high school, um, and on, went on to work, uh, went on to do engineering at Waterloo. And then I had an offer coming out of Waterloo that year I was the only one who got an offer from both Apple and Microsoft that year and I remember even during the interview process for Apple and Microsoft I bought the keychains from the cities that I was going over to for those interviews because I had no intention of I, I, I just thought that they made a mistake when they when they put me through the interview process so I thought well, I might as well get the free trip and get get the keychain and come back um, all my friends couldn't get the offer so there's no way I'm getting it and so I, I went in with that mindset. Ironically, I did get the offer from both. I ended up working at Microsoft, but then even during my time at Microsoft, if you were to walk into my office, it looked like an intern's office, like someone who was just there for a few months because I never really settled in because I, I genuinely felt that uh, they made a mistake, that I don't belong here. Um, so that imposter syndrome carried with me all the way through my uh, time at Microsoft. I solved this problem in Microsoft. Uh, it was the number one issue that was affecting customer support. Um, and uh, at the time, I guess no one really, that was the young guy, the young program manager. So they gave me like, perhaps the least interesting feature or problem to, to, to space to work on. And there was probably no expectation of solving it because it's been a problem that existed since the beginning. Um, so it was uh, pretty much an unsolvable problem up, up until that point. I ended up solving it, getting a lot of recognition for that. And I think it was around that time that I realized that, hey, what just happened? I, I actually, uh, you know, everyone that could have solved that problem was in that building. This is a huge building, by the way. It's, it's the size of a board ship. And everyone that was capable of solving that problem was in that building at some point in time since the beginning of Microsoft. Um, and, and so that meant everyone in the world that had what had a chance at solving it was there and I was the one to solve it. So I, in some ways, t uh, tasted the edge of innovation, right? That edge of human knowledge and contribution. And when I realized the process that I had used to do that was the same process that I used to overcome my own struggles in school. And then I'm all too familiar with this process. Uh, I then somehow found, my, found myself again reading biographies and books of what were a handful of childhood heroes diving in now as a, a young adult uh, in their stories and their biographies uh, and, and collecting more stories. So I would go to work, and this is in, in the States, I would go to work, then I would go to the bookstore and I would just bury myself in books and just read about these folks. And one thing I started to emerge during that time, which perhaps is useful advice for anyone interested in pursuing uh, entrepreneurship or, or their passion, one thing that emerged was this idea of, you know, uh, the ones who really succeed look at look at the, their endeavor as a sprint. Sorry, as a marathon, not a sprint. Right. This is a really great quote. We overestimate what we accomplish in a day, but we underestimate what we accomplish in a decade. And the folks who achieved great things, who pioneered great things, uh, one, they were so passionate about that thing that they were willing to give up five to 10 years to pursue this thing, something that perhaps no one else cared about. There was some underlying trends that 
uh, at right time at the right moment that they spotted that recognized that there was an, an actual shot at making a difference, right? Some underlying trends. So that's kind of key as well as pursuing that passion and running that marathon versus a sprint. And, and finally, like the idea of being able to fail 10 years after, after 10 years of trying and still knowing that you might fail and the regret of not trying would still overweigh the regret of trying and failing, right? And if you could find something that you cared about so much, you felt that maybe you might be at, at the point of its inflection, right time, right place, and that you would be willing to, and you were in a position, because some of it, of course, is out of your control, uh, you know, uh, financial dependency, support systems, people around you are going to be making the sacrifice just as much as you are. Um, and, and if all those conditions are aligned, those stars align, you have a real shot at perhaps making a dent. And even if you don't, you, you would regret more the, the idea of not trying. And so that for me uh, were the necessary conditions to finding something. And now that I have tasted this innovation uh, bug, I, I began to pursue uh, something in education, given my background, and ultimately found myself in tech, but specifically in math, which brings us to knowledge, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk. We'll dive more into knowledge in just a second. I've noticed that more people have come into um, the webinar. So for those who are just coming in, feel free to shoot over any questions either in the chat or in the Q and A feature. Um, you should see like a little button on the side that says Q and A in chat. So feel free to click those and send over any questions you think of, and I'll get to them. All right. So now that I I made that explanation, back to you, Travis. So. Um, how how is that journey of like learning about all of reading all these biographies and learning all these key pieces of information how has that brought you to where you are today what made you decide to build um knowledge hook your current company um yeah i guess so i knew you know it, it, so one of the things i learned about myself and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of folks who can relate to this is that i um one of those folks who if I find an emotional connection to the work I was doing, uh, it's an obsession and you get the most out of my productivity. So passion uh, is both a blessing and a curse for me because if I'm not passionate about it, then you get the opposite, right? Um, and so one of the things I, I recognize, and everyone's different this way, but I, I, I suppose it's important to sort of sort of as you go through your your own journey or whatever you do like just to recognize what what makes you tick what brings the best out of you what are those conditions so i was like okay so i need to find something i'm truly i truly have an emotional connection for the other thing that um you know i noticed was i was doing a lot of volunteer work with my co-founder lambo at the time um during the south asian tsunami and then in 2009 you know uh just volunteering work around um during the tsunami and then press freedom um, and I really found that I, I needed to have a social connection to whatever it was. There was a social impact. So I knew that that was also something that if, you know, 80, when I'm 80 years old and I look back at my life, I felt like I can sort of connect the dots between my work and, you know, its contribution to humanity. So there's these weird um, necessary conditions that I knew that if I had a shot at, like it would just bring out the best in me, emotionally speaking, uh, passion. Um, so that was, that was definitely it. So then the last key thing for me was I like, I like making things. I like building things up. 
very different from you, Anjali. And, and so there's something about like making something and see someone's reaction to it. And I was doing this leading up to that. I wasn't actually a, a magician at, you know, for quite some time of my early, early uh, childhood at, as a young entrepreneur doing magic shows. And um, I made a lot of uh, science projects and gadgets and products and, and beta products just for fun. Not some of them, most of them didn't go anywhere, but the idea of making something was key. So once I knew all of these things, I said, okay, let me just go searching in this space in education technology, because it had things that were connected to my childhood. I, I, I saw that there was going to be a revolution coming in this space. And at the time, no one was necessarily paying attention to the degree that, um, you know, uh, that it could have had more attention and I saw an opportunity to and I had a, I had coming out of Microsoft I had a pretty good understanding of like how like having read these biographies as well of what it took to, 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 to move in that direction and I had a process of reading and learning and doing that started to really ref, get refined by then and so all of these conditions really uh, um, you know cr created the, the climate for me to, to begin the discovery process, which is something where you have a blurry vision of where you want to go, you start reading about the space, you start learning about the problems in education, and slowly but surely you start to see an opportunity. For me, uh, some of those emerging trends revealed that gamification was going to be a key uh, uh, element and or ingredient to the future of learning online. And that was very key. And I, so I really immersed myself in that world. Uh, I knew it was going to be a business because prior to that, my co-founder were running not-for-profits and I was frustrated at its ability to make an impact. I guess I wasn't made for it to, 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 to basically do a not-for-profit, but I was, I find, discovered that I was made to build a company. So I started to learn about that. I, did, I decided to do an MBA. It turned out that you don't necessarily need an MBA to start a company. It's really great to run one, but not necessarily to start one. So, but I did it and it was helpful for me especially now at the journey that stage that we're at now. But uh, I had to, so I did the MBA, then I had to put everything I learned in the MBA on the shelf and ignore it until the, I started, uh, you know, the discovery process of knowledge, the lean startup method, right? So, so that, that really um, sort of uh, was what my journey was like in the early days. And, uh, you know, I, I slowly pivoted from, you know, Mingopolis, while I was at Queens, I started this test prep thing with MCAT. I thought it was going to be MCAT. I had no idea it was going to be math. And I tried a few things and I, then I read Lean Startup and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm wasting all my time here not talking to customers. And I started to understand the ways of serial entrepreneurs. So then I went in and started uh, immersing myself in serial entrepreneurship and Lean Startup and Steve Blank's work and other, other, other folks from the Valley to understand what this process looked like. I, I pivoted to a company called Prepaholic, which was a test, uh, like a, um, you know, say a, a university guide or assistant um, company uh, to help students with uh, certain courses. And Prepaholic was it's exam prep um, for student courses for, for university. So I spent some time in that space and I realized I couldn't get the economics to work. So I pivoted again and I found myself in math and there was something that just lit up in me and both both there and the opportunity I saw in front of me that said, I think I found my home. And, and so uh, it gave me the, both the insights and the energy to then sort of pursue uh, figuring out what, what does, 
what does the future of math learning look like both in the classroom and the home? And, and uh, you know, I felt that there was enough struggles happening in classrooms that was worth trying to, you know, really put a lot of time and attention to solve. Nothing, nothing very different from what I did at Microsoft when I was solving that problem at Microsoft, right? And I just realized like, I, I both am passionate enough and I had the skills to figure it out and the co-founders and the teammates to, that came along for the journey to help me do that. So that's, that's in a nutshell sort of how I got there. Um, people of inspiration at the time, um, Tony Fidel was the guy who gave me the offer at Apple. And for those of you who don't know who Tony Fidel is, he's the founder of Nest at the time. Uh, while he was at Apple, he basically was the founder of the iPod or it's, 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 it's written in Jobs' biography that both him and Jobs, there's like one group that believes it was Tony Fidel, the other group believes it was Jobs, but I'm guessing it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, he was, so obviously Steve Jobs, uh, all this to say that Steve Jobs was truly, I later learned more about this guy and who he was and how special he was. And that was a big influence in my, in my work um, in trying to design great product and following their processes. So there's, there's been many, uh, obviously Elon Musk, uh, is, is without saying, uh, if, if, if you take all the greats of, of entrepreneurs throughout history, uh, the ones that we know of, like Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, uh, and, you know, Nikola Tesla, his Embark Kingdom Brunel was just a great industrial, industrial engineer in the UK. There's a number of greats. If you take them all and roll them up into one, you get Elon Musk, I think. A lot of those guys would are probably looking down at this guy and like super proud at like all the innovation and the work he's doing. And he's really setting the bar up really high for everyone else. But so there's been a lot of great inspiration and, and you could sort of, what I like when I look at these folks, it's not so much the success, but the failures and the humanity of their journey, because I think that's a great inspiration. And of course there's success, but, but really like putting them in a pedestal, I think does a disservice for us all because they only have 24 hours in a day. They, their brain is not wired too differently from ours. They may have had some fortunate circumstances, which I think, again, is, is something that luck does play a little role. But if you look past those things, you see a lot of basic skills that you just have to, and conditions that you have to sort of cultivate in yourself uh, over time to really try to pursue. And so that's been, that's been uh, some of the folks that inspired me. How about yourself? Just curious. Oh, <laughs> who's inspired me? Um, yeah, I think Elon Musk. I feel like everybody in the in the born in the last like what 30, 40 years is like Elon Musk has to be one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're. I think you you got it completely right. You can imagine like any figure from the past. Elon Musk is all of those wrapped up into one. Yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, so well, we just had one question come in from Aravind. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that out. His question is, how long were you in corporate before venturing out? That's a really great question. So there's, uh, there's this like uh, stereotypical, not stereotypical, but this glorification of this idea of, um, you know, the young entrepreneur dropping out of university and going straight into uh, building a company. And while that is the case, I think 
on statistically speaking, I think on average, uh, what it shows that there's a lot of folks who spend a little bit of time in the corporate world, get some exposure to business practices and then leave and then start a company. And, and I think that's the more common scenario. That being said, I don't think there's, uh, I wouldn't advise either one. Um, it really comes down to your, your journey, your experience and the thing you see in front of you, because sometimes going into corporate might make you think in a certain way that will prevent you from seeing the future. Right. And predicting and making sometimes that innocence, that naivety of what about this approach and the trial and error can really help you uncover something that, uh, you know, uh, no one else has uh, seen. And sometimes going down one path can prevent you from that. So that's 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 one thing. But definitely I spent, you know, uh, ironically, the funny thing about this is, is I've been around adults since I was around seven. So I was a sales Toronto star salesperson for my uncle delivered paper when I was eight only not because my parents encouraged it I, I was I, I bug I begged them to let me do it because I just wanted the exposure I don't know why I was wired that way but I was a receptionist at 11 at, at a church um, I was a you know I, my, I like to my parents like to joke about this because I, I I'm pretty sure I, I was a cook at KFC for at least two months and my mom keeps saying no that was two weeks don't get ahead of yourself, but I'm pretty certain I was cooked for a, a considerable amount of time to get exposure on how to cook KFC. So I was even a cook at some point, just as a student though. I was in, it was between summers, um, and uh, I and then I then I was uh, I worked in HR through as an intern. So over the summers, I started cultivating summer jobs just to get exposure to the different companies and industries. So I did HR for one summer as a student, another one as a uh, in the PR department, then I went into, uh, um, you know, en the engineering department. I did a lot of internships, all before Waterloo, ironically. I was a technician at Bell, and, you know, in the early years of my, my youth, before, before Waterloo Co-op. And then Waterloo Co-op exposes you to a ton of companies. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, researching and exploring those opportunities and really trying to think it through and navigate it to a range of experiences. Um, so that, that in many ways, I saw adults and I, I think I walked away with this really important insight, uh, which is that a lot of these folks, like you're going to spend the rest of your life doing your career. And it's perhaps worth, uh, you know, spending a little bit of time figuring out what it is that you might love to do because you're going to spend the rest of your life doing it. And, and sometimes you get into those situations, not necessarily thinking that part through and might get stuck in something you might not want to do. And I saw a lot of that throughout my journey. And so I guess you can say around the age of 25, when I was at Microsoft, I went through what perhaps folks might go through at the age of 45, 50, which is a midlife crisis. So I was there and I solved this problem in Microsoft and I was like, okay, I solved the number one problem. What am I going to do next? Right. And there was nothing left to do in my opinion, like Microsoft office was reaching a point of maturity in terms of features and functionality. And there was nothing left to do. So I was really bored of, uh, of, of I was getting bored and, and I realized that because it had left, there was not much left to do in terms of enhancements. All the great innovation happened in the early days of 
uh, you know, PC computing for, for Microsoft Office. And so that must have been where all the action was. And I got a taste a little bit of it, but I was thinking like, okay, everything I could do right now is just tiny, tiny optimizations. It's like the, you know, the socket on our wall. At some time, you know, Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison fought AC, DC. There was a huge battle between those two guys trying to make, uh, you, know, in, you know, basically win uh, bids and RFPs for the power grids. And they were fighting between alternative current and direct current, and they were going through that revolution. And uh, now, for the last 50 years or more, there has been no changes in ECDC. So I guess all this to say that it's good to get a bit of corporate experience if that's something that makes you feel more confident um, in your journey. And I think that's an important part of that. But at the same time, I don't think it's a necessary condition. And at the same time, uh, if you truly are not happy there, or you can, if you have an opportunity to sort of quickly assess your situation and figure out what it is that makes you tick, uh, my advice would be to try to steer towards that as quickly as possible, because if you are gonna spend the rest of your life doing something, um, you know, ideally it's something you're truly passionate about. And I think that's, you know, hopefully I answered the question, but also added a little bit more there, so, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and this one is from Pirakash. So question, I'll start with the first one. Yes, too. So what were your biggest hurdles in terms of environment um, or, or in your personal life in terms of following this entrepreneurial journey and building knowledge hook and you, and you taking that time after Microsoft to really decide this is what I'm passionate about? Ooh, lots of hurdles. That's the thing about, uh, pursuing entrepreneurship, um, I'm, you know, I, I definitely think it's not for everyone. And I definitely think that if you are going to do this, you want to, you want to find your why, like your purpose, because, because it's a marathon, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of hurdles to get to every milestone in, in, in the journey. Um, and the only thing that's going to keep you going is this idea of not trying, the regret of not trying, and the belief that you know you're going to sort of at least sacrifice five to ten years in this trajectory in this direction because at least I mean you know this is this is this is what worked for me and what I read about in terms of what others have done um, because I do think that um, you know uh, you're going to get many hurdles. That being said, some of those hurdles were recognizing the, you know, not knowing about the serial entrepreneurial method. So learning about lean startup, learning about Steve Blank's work around how to, uh, you know, essentially reduce the number of risks associated to pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor by breaking down all your assumptions and testing them individually uh, and slowly assembling um, your business model um, piecemeal that way and understanding how to achieve that. Um, one hurdle that I didn't have that I maybe perhaps over-prepared for was understanding the, the nature of competitive strategy. So if you create a startup and then this big 800-foot gorilla of a company likes your idea, how do you avoid the situation of getting gobbled up, uh, them you know, throwing money and resources at the same idea and then basically you know, stealing it away from you because they just have more power? Uh, so one of the first things I learned about, perhaps not a struggle, 
perhaps because I had spent some time on was uh, competitive strategy. And I'm more than happy to talk about that one if, if you guys want to talk about that. But, um, uh, but other areas of struggle much later. So I would say in a nutshell, Steve Blank and, and Lean Startup and understanding the serial entrepreneurial way, um, I could have saved at least a year if I had read that book before I started, uh, at least a year, maybe two. And then, the, so product market fit was key. And then the second thing that I wish I knew was once you have product market fit, you want to have what's called go to market fit. So let's say you have an established brand, customers like you, you know, you build out that sort of reputation and okay, that's great. Then they start referring you to other customers, all that sort of thing. But then what if there's like a whole new customer base in another province or another state, another territory, another location on the other side of the world that has never heard of you because all of your customers were within driving distance. And that's exactly what was happening to us in our first year of product market fit. We were growing, but growing within the network effect of our current client base. So the next thing you need is what's called go-to-market fit, which is this idea of how do you, uh, you know, recreate that experience that, um, um, that, you know, that get that first customer in a completely new market where no one, they could go, they can't go to the, you know, down, down the street and ask for a referral from another customer. So they're hearing you, hearing about you for the first time and there's no one locally that they can talk to to say, how, how are these guys? And that's called go-to-market fit. And, and, and developing a really good go-to-market strategy to scale your company is also a very important skill that an entrepreneur needs to develop. And um, how to make a complete stranger who's so far away fall in love with your brand. And for me, that was also an equally difficult hurdle to overcome. And also the solution was both learning and trying and learning and trying, reading and learning and trying over and over and over again for me. And uh, that I think, if, if I were to sum it up, product market fit and go to market fit were some of the biggest hurdles. And there were many little ones in between. And ultimately, if you're not passionate and you're not playing the long game, um, it's gonna be very difficult to go through each one. Um, so the title of this, this conference is Trends and opportunities in ed tech. So I'd love to take some time to kind of touch on that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, what are some trends that you see in this space of ed tech? So, maybe to narrow that down a bit, why don't we start with the current crazy situation we're in, which is the global pandemic? So, you have any predictions on how COVID 19 may impact this space? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, uh, it is one of the things that um, generally speaking, like one thing that's always worked for me is to not um, make decisions on short-term trends. Um, we will get through this pandemic and we will, for future pandemic uh, um, scares and alerts, we'll have better infrastructure to support us and to move through these type of moments again. And we are caught off guard. Um, the majority of the West have, have been caught off guard because unlike um, the East and other uh, parts of Africa, who handled this period much better than we did, they had gone through some pandemics and, and similar situations in the past and then and had the infrastructure to, to navigate through it. So that's something to keep in mind as we go through this. That being said, uh, the pandemic has accelerated um, things that were already happening, but it accelerated the timelines for these things to happen. 
And of course, uh, you're seeing uh, the vast majority of that related to software and SaaS-based companies. And edtech is definitely at the, at the forefront of one of those industries that are now seeing an acceleration of things that they anticipated happening perhaps two years out, three years out. And uh, um, some of the trends that I'm predicting are related to my knowledge of what you know I've seen and ex anticipated were gonna happen, was gonna happen uh, in our space uh, for some time. But some of those things are gonna only now move faster. It, and, and the most, I think perhaps the most unique one or counterintuitive one is that education, online education, while it is going to disrupt and improve the current experiences that we have today, and it's gonna be here to stay, I think that before we even talk about edtech, let's talk about the traditional educational systems. The higher ed, so university, what I'm predicting is that universities are gonna get disrupted in and of itself. So the actual model of a university, I suspect, is being questioned. Because if you look at what the pandemic did, you have two interesting phenomenons for lower ed and higher ed. In higher ed, you have this interesting thing happening where people are questioning the value of higher ed, right? If I'm here remotely and I can get this stuff on YouTube or online, what is the value of going to class in higher ed? And given the price point, and that price has only gone up and up and up, but the actual product has not changed for the last decade or, or more, and that's higher education. So it is ripe for disruption. So the actual institution is gonna be disrupt. In lower ed, and this is very counterintuitive, the institution is not gonna get disrupted. They're like, parents have to go to work and who's gonna take care of their kids when parents are at work? Higher ed, while well, higher ed is gonna be disrupted, we saw the, 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 everyone experienced, you have kids experience the stresses of trying to do your work during the day while your kids are at home and trying to move them along as well in their education. And that's challenging. And so there was this uh, despair from many parents who had kids who were expected to be in school trying to navigate those two things. And so what you're gonna see, you saw the opposite reaction. Oh man, I have a lot more respect for, you know, why these services are here. Um, and there are going to be improvements and enhancements in K to 12. And so one of the things we knew um, when it came to building an ed tech company for higher ed is how do you know what to build if you don't know what higher ed is going to look like years from now, right? And so you kind of have to watch the disruptions to know where things, where the chips are going to fall to really understand how is higher ed going to rearrange itself. And, 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 and that's one aspect of it. And there are some interesting models like Udemy and others that are kind of already, I think, pioneering some new uh, digital certifications and new ideas that I think will uh, grow uh, during the pandemic and continue to be here afterwards. In lower ed, one of the things that we, you know, Knowledge was, you know, uniquely poised for was supporting the teacher as much as we support the student and supporting the parent as much as we support the student and understanding that all three of those folks are different people and they have different uh, roles to play in the child's journey in math, supporting the administrator and how they provide support for the teacher, in, particularly in math and math uh, teaching teachers on how to teach math. So that's called math, professional development in math. Administrators have specific roles to play there as well. And we were, I guess, the only company 
that actually connected the dots of all those folks uh, who are in different buildings. You have the classroom, you have people at home, and you have um, you know, folks at the district office. And being able to understand like what, where technology could play a role in each of those things and connecting and creating an experience that we call an instructional guidance system, that I think uh, positioned us well to sort of navigate uh, and support folks during this critical time. And um, I think that's, it's for us, it's accelerated K to 12. And I think what you're gonna see in K to 12 in terms of digital trends is uh, a, a big fight uh, happening between Apple, Microsoft, Google, and perhaps some of the traditional like LMSs, learning management systems like Desire to Learn, Blackboard, fighting for an administration layer for managing student data, student classes, student registration, all of those operational pieces. And then around the quality of education, like actual curriculum content and learning, you're gonna see companies like Knowledger compete with others in three very key areas. One is lessons, and there's now a lot of uh, really great uh, innovation races and battles happening. And we are in, in that race right now to design the future of lessons and interactive lessons, the designing the future of interactive homework and making it um, in a, it's an experience that competes with Fortnite, let's say, right? As much as it competes with other types of uh, challenges because homework is under attack at home with social media and gaming. And you know, unless you're a parent watching your kids at home, you wouldn't appreciate just how much homework is under attack. So understanding uh, the future of homework, understanding the future of lessons in class and the future of after school tutoring and, and the innovation opportunity for innovation there, there's going to be a lot of great battles. And we're kind of uh, at the, at the early point of that battle, I would argue. And uh, knowledge, I think is we're, we're poised well. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, what others do, but our approach was, let's just look at, instead of following trends, like, uh, oh, we are the Facebook of this. We said, let's look at the problem in this particular case, math. And for me and my connection with my dad, this has great meaning for me. Um, let's try to solve this holistically for math and become a leading brand solving this experience end to end, like a vertical, like just like Tesla, you know, the battery, the car, thinking of this end to end and creating a unified experience centered around the customer and really, really learn, applying first principles, applying, understanding each of these roles and putting it all together and creating this like really great experience. I want Tesla, Lego, Ikea, Apple, vertically integrated, like really great experiences and designs. Like I think about how knowledge you can do that in education, particularly for math, and then expand into other subjects. And that's, I think, uh, um, some of the trends and how we're responding to the trends. Yeah, I, I thought your commentary on, so first of all, lower ed and higher ed, both very interesting. Um, so higher ed, I thought that was interesting because um, I, there was this interview by the author of the book, um, the four, the big four, the big four, Scott Galloway. Oh, yeah, Scott. yeah, yeah. So he he kind of alludes to the same kind of things, and you mentioned the big four. So I thought, is that are you familiar with? I am Philip. It's possible that I, I may have even been influenced by some of his thinking because I do follow him yeah. a lot. But there has been quite a few people talking about this. Right. Right. Yeah. The the, the divergence. The, the, the trends that are happening in higher ed versus lower ed. Um, but yeah, definitely Scott, I'm a big fan of Scott. It's, it looks like you are too. 
yeah yeah uh, the book was pretty good big four yeah i i have not read that book um but uh i have i think seen some youtube video about him yeah. talking about a presentation about the big four and some of the trends across that if i'm not mistaken you're talking about the fang right so face the big yeah, four. yeah 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 Thing, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen some of his uh, insights there. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to jump back into Q&A for a second. Um, so from Prasha, you had you had mentioned competitiveness in the tech slash ed educational industry. Now that we're moving towards online platforms for learning, we can see this competitiveness in our community um, much more, especially with the pandemic. So her question is, what process or steps or tools did you take to make your product unique and more attractive? And what are some more steps that you're gonna be taking as we see, like you mentioned, a bigger battle in lower ed? <laughs> Ooh, that's a, that's, a, that's a meaty question that could probably fill up the rest of the, the, the interview, but that's a good question. I mean, I, I, and I'm not shy or bashful about sharing these things uh, at all. Um, the, in terms of competitiveness, uh, and this is, you know, honestly, this is, this is one of the great things about guys like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, that they actually succeeded. Um, because by succeeding, they've kind of opened the, almost gave permission uh, for everyone else to sort of spend a lot of time, a disproportionate amount of time of building great product and great product experiences, ease of use, simplicity. Um, and then, of course, on the other side with Musk, like being that sort of engineer and trying to solve some really deep problem spaces. And I think, um, you know, if, if that in a nutshell are my two key like processes, right? It's looking at problems and saying, and, and, and trying to treat that as an opportunity to solve. It's always been a key recipe in the company. You talk to anyone who's been here since the beginning and they'll tell you like, you know, like Travis always talks about how, oh, we are up against this problem. Oh my gosh, what do we do? And he lights up because he knows if we solve this problem, it's one additional competitive barrier. Someone else has to solve it too to get to where we are. If it became too easy, then anyone can do it. And that means uh, there's really no opportunity to make and scale a business to make a big impact. So uh, problems are also the thing that uh, fuel uh, competitive advantage when you solve them. So. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I love problems. Like I love hurdles. It's like, oh my gosh, like we can't seem to, you know, get behind this hurdle. Um, and so, so, so definitely one of the processes we have is to seek for ways to improve our design, our experience, uh, solve human problems. You know, when it comes to education, uh, it's not just engineering as in inanimate, the physics of inanimate things, but it's also psychology. It's also change management. It's organizational change. It's like understanding that districts are trying to support the learning of not just students, but hundreds, if not a thousand teachers in their district. And that requires organizational change behavior. And you have to pull from some of the industries, other industries, best practices and apply first principles because, you know, it may, if you just copy it from another industry, it may not transfer well. So you have to truly understand its underlying essence of what, what makes this thing effective in that industry. And then how to transfer it over to this. I don't know if you watched uh, Battery Day um, with for Tesla. If you happen to watch the uh, the presentation, uh, Anjali, just out of curiosity. No, I missed it. I, was, I, no I worries, missed no, it. I don't know how. I'm sure you'll get to it. But yeah. one of the interesting things that I observed there was they were trying to improve the cost of 
um, improve the production rate of batteries. And battery production has been done a certain way since the beginning of battery production. Batteries have been around for some time. And they, well, they thought, okay, well, what other uh, production line has managed to drastically reduce the cost of their product uh, to the point where that product became a commodity? And the answer to that question was bottles, Coca-Cola bottles and glass bottles. So they went to look at the production lines of Coke, Coke and bottled manufacturing and pulled out, applied first principles and pulled out the core elements of that that made sense, that could make sense for battery production and re redesigned a new battery production line, which is the thing that's gonna be rolling out, I think in about a year and a half from now. But it's, that is the, in essence, the process we apply for innovation, right? You run into an issue and you go to other industries, other places, and you have to ask the right question. What makes, uh, you know, like, like, who has solved this in some other way in some other industry? And then you go there and you get find creative ways to find yourself in front of people who are from that industry and you extract that insight as best as you can. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. And then you come back to your place and you start tinkering until you can see what it makes sense, what makes sense in the context of education. So that's one of my processes. And then the final process is um, something that um, I think no one had done better arguably not even Elon Musk has done better than Steve Jobs, and I don't think he would deny that, um, is this idea of iterating on the user experience over and over and over again. Like an artist would, you know, if you're a sculptor and you sort of, you know, have a block of clay and you start to, you know, um, sculpt the initial proportions of the, the thing you're trying to make, and then you go back again and you pass through it again until you refine your, your piece of work. Jobs was... Uh, renowned for going back and reviewing the buyer's journey, the, the user's journey, the consumer's journey, the storyboarding of a user experience. And he would do this over and over again until he found something that was not working and that could be made better. And he would do this over and over the way uh, an artist would you know, do, work on a piece of artwork. And I can tell you, there's no business management, there's no product management, there's no project management tools that are designed to optimize for that. If every one of those tools in traditional business make you go through everything once and spit it out the door. There's nothing in modern business that articulates that process so effectively, right? Uh, except in among the art world, the, the storyboarders. Even Disney was really good at storyboarding. What made Pixar great from all the computer companies at the time was they were storyboarding their stories before they put it into graphics. And so the art of storyboarding is another key process to building great product I leave with, and then I have two more things. So there's two more other frameworks I use, uh, but these are by far, the two I just listed, these are by far the most important. The idea of innovating, solving problems and finding things outside of our, our space to, to, to bring to our world. Uh, and then the process of design, like great product design and really passionately be willing to, let's go through this experience again, over and over until it, you, you refine it. And so those are the two most important things. And that being said, there are levels to this, okay? So when you build a brand, there are three levels to a great brand. The first is functional. So when you have a table, if the table is wobbly, it's not functional. When you open a fridge and the food is not cold, the fridge is not doing its functional job. So every great brand has to be functional. They have to serve a purpose and reliably do so consistently, right? That's functional. That's level one. Level two is the senses. So your experience with that product, 
you know, um, there's some aesthetical design decisions, things that appeal to the eyes, to the, to the smell if it's food, right? And, and the sound. Did you know that the snap bottle, when you open the, the, the lid, it makes this pop sign. They had sound design engineers artificially manufacture that sound so that you get the feeling of like that this was sealed in a vacuum so that it's fresh. Really? I didn't know that that was engineered. Sound engineering. So level two is sound and like, like senses, not sound engineering, senses. You know, when you look at a Dyson, there's certain designs, uh, decisions in that vacuum cleaner that are not practical. They're there for emotional appeal. So how do you appeal to the emotion of, as they experience your product, right? And, you know, Harley Davidson's, there are certain things that are nostalgic of a certain period, a certain tribe of folks who ride that bike. And they do that to make appeal to those emotions, to that nostalgia. So that's a level two brand understands the importance of making design decisions like that. When you walk into an a in Canada, not in the US, in Canada, um, you can see like those frosted mugs and you can see stickers of like icicles on the frosted fridge that's deliberately facing you so that you get the sense of, oh, wow, they have frosted mugs but that they're gonna pour your soda in that frosted mug. Those are senses, right? Level three is values, societal values, your personal values, and making design decisions that maybe not everyone's gonna notice, but the ones who care about certain values will pay attention, will notice. And that's when you get all three levels of a brand. When you can create an experience that hits all three levels, when you think about all three levels, you create a brand that has an emotional connection and with your customer, with your teammates, your employees are much more proud to go to work because they can almost predict what direction the company is going to go when they run into, let's say, an ethical dilemma or a moral dilemma or, hey, this, this hurts people this way. How can we do this a better way that aligns to our values? And you can almost, and that's a fun place to go to work to, right? And I think for customers, the ones who notice those little decisions, they, it forms, like you get uh, advocates, people who spread, spread your brand awareness. You get loyalty. When you struggle through a tough time, you have people wanting to stick around with you longer. And so that's, uh, that is another thing that I used to, you know, really design great product. And I have one more, but I can go on and on. So I'm going to stop there and um, perhaps for another time. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that takes up all the time we have for questions. Um, so thank you everyone for tuning in today. And I mentioned earlier that we had a surprise for all of you brave souls who stuck it out till the end. So as a special perk for all the incredible audience members who made it to the end, I'm gonna, um, I want you to have exclusive access to pre-registration for our Youth Innovation Forum. So this is a, an event that connects young people, so students, with mentors from Ivy League universities. So think Dr. Psychic Chowdhury, a, a Wharton professor and executive director at the Mac Institute. So we have these Ivy League University professors, as well as CEOs of multi-million dollar international companies and more. So if you stuck it around till the end, I know you have what it takes to really get the most value from a conference like this. And as a result, I'd like to make this opportunity completely free for those of you who stayed until the end. Our last, so keep in mind, our last conference filled up within four days of us releasing uh, registration. So I recommend that you take advantage of this break. I'll share a link in the chat.
and give people a couple moments to take advantage of that. All right. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, Omar Time Travis, for, for being a part of this. Shout out to all the, the awesome people who helped make this conference a reality and get this going. So shout out to Shiv, shout out to Ara, both at Tamil Culture. Thank you all so much. And most, and also most importantly, thank you to our audience. That's awesome. It was great meeting you, Anjali. And uh, I'm glad I got to finally meet you. And uh, this was a great experience. I hope, I hope it was of value for folks attending. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I learned a bunch. So I really hope that our audience did as well. So thank you. Thank you one more time. Uh, no, my pleasure. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Here's the link. I just got um, Oh, okay, here. Here you go. Here's the link. Mystartupdojo.com slash TC conference.